Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is Paul Axton, and I'm here today with Nathan Hostler. And Nathan is in Washington, D.C., and with the Office of Peace Building and Policy. Am I saying that right, Nathan? Yes, that's correct. And explain, now you're with the Church of the Brethren. Can you tell us a little bit of the distinctives of the Church of the Brethren? Sure. So the Church of the Brethren is one of the historic peace churches, though there has been an emphasis in the last number of years to at least the last maybe decade or so to to rename this as a living peace church, noting that it's an ongoing tradition. As a historic peace church, we traditionally and hence historically um, have not participated in war, so we've been conscientious objectors. We also had strong emphasis of reading the Bible in community and discernment in the community, um, as well as a very strong thread of service. Um, I, I would, these things, and particularly in the mid-century, mid-20th century, the non-participation in war, and then the active peace, uh, active service began to uh, shift more into the language of peacemaking. Um, we were early participants in the ecumenical movement here in the U.S., and so we're on the founding end of National Council of Churches as well as the World Council of Churches and a number of other ecumenical and then eventually interfaith efforts as well. Uh, and so we're started in Germany a little bit after like the Mennonites, so one of the older Anabaptist groups, in 1708, and within a uh, relatively short time, and all ended up in the U.S. And so in the U.S., we're about 100,000 members now, um, but then there are also a number of Church of the Brethren bodies around the world, um, northern Nigeria being one of the, being the largest of probably about a million members called Ecclesia Yanua in Nigeria, so in Boko Haram affected areas in northern Nigeria. And I would guess, is uh, some of the, in the, the, the girls that have been con- kidnapped, have they been connected with your church? Yeah, so the Church of the Brethren built the school that they were kidnapped from in the 1930s or 40s. We have two different records. Um, and this was then one that was turned over to the government around the time of independence, a little bit after independence of Nigeria. And so presently it was a government school, but that's still a heavily uh, Church of the Brethren area. And so a majority, one number I've heard actually only somewhat recently was um, 219 of the 276 girls were Church of the Brethren. Members, we have a Bible school in that same in Chibok, the same town. So when my wife and I worked in Nigeria, I, I actually never visited Chibok, but we were pretty close there. And Jen, she visited uh, at one point. Yeah, uh, tell me the status of uh, has there been any shift among the girls that some of them have been returned, as I understand. Yeah, there's there haven't been any in the last few weeks. I forget where exactly the numbers stand now. There's still, I think, close to 100 missing, but there have been a few waves. Initially, a number escaped by jumping off of trucks and things, and then there's maybe two other major times when they were either released or in some way some way released. There was differing backgrounds on how they got out. Um, so, yeah, and there's also, but there's also many other people that have been abducted, um, many of the girls, many women, um, fewer men, but still some. Um, one of our partners who's Church of the Brethren there, she's she's working. She has, I think she has a name, something like the names of 4,000 people wow. that have been abducted. Um, so it's, um, the numbers are much higher, but that was the, the big and, you know, very public and well-known instance. 
Well, it, it is a, uh, that you are a traditional peace church. I'm, I'm just curious, and then you have an office in Washington. Uh, do the, mm-hmm. How do those two things fit together? Uh, I mean, isn't that uh, normally when we think of uh, certain forms of Anabaptism, we don't think of the, that direct engagement with uh, Washington? Uh well, we have a. It's been a quite a long time since we've been here. the The first person who was here as a representative wasn't. A, I don't know if it was a formal office at that point. It was in 1946, um, and now it's been. I forget the exact date, but when I started in 2012, it was about 60 years that we've had a, a office. It's closed at a few points and opened, and some people certainly still mm-hmm. say we shouldn't have a presence here. But we have we have statements going back. Um, my one of my staff people was just looking through and quoting some of these because. Um, you know, sometimes people say we shouldn't be doing this sort of thing. And we have, you know, a long, long track record of saying where we can engage, we should engage, but there are certainly things we can engage on. Uh, also, uh, Friends Communal National Legislation, so historic Quaker, um, they're officially lobbyists. Uh, many of them are actually registered lobbyists. They've been here for quite a long time. Mennonite Central Committee is celebrating their 50 years of the Washington office. Um, so there's, there's, with the Historic Peace Church and also American Friends Service Committee, Another Quaker body has um, an office here, public policy office as well. And so there's certainly there's not, a, because there's probably not a uniform opinion on anything, um, but there's not a uniform opinion in our body that we should necessarily have this office, but we have annual conference statements, which is our deciding body that go quite far back that say, yeah, this is a good thing to do. And if we're, um, you know, my articulation is if we're going to be opposed to, to war and not participate, we should be also very active in trying to find alternatives and also you know, slow down the the destructive consequences of war, but also slow down the possibility of war. But there are certainly many complications for being in such a place for such a church. <laughs> Ted, can you describe a little bit then what does your office do? So the we would engage on a number of topics, which would be defined and within the parameters of our annual conference statements. And so we can't work on, like, our annual conference policy directs anything that we work on, so we can't do anything outside of that. Um, But then we also work on topics where I think we have a particular, um, for whatever reason, a particular strength. And so, for example, we were one of the first or the first church to have a specific statement against drone warfare. My office did initial drafting of this in 2013. And so then from this, uh, we got, there was some funding for a conference that ended up being at Princeton, and out of that became a a drones working group here in D.C., drone warfare working group in D.C., and then also a network that's broader than D.C. and does a lot of education work and where some of our funding has ended up going. Uh, so we would, those would be some of the ways we would um, narrow down what we work on, also where we have historic or significant connections. So my office also convenes a working group on Nigeria, and as just discussed about the Church of the Brethren there, and I had worked there for two years before coming to D.C., I both have a a degree of personal expertise in this and experience, but also we have, you know, a great deal of institutional buy-in and connection into this particular region and um, context. And then also um, I, there are about 75 faith-based offices that we in some way directly work with or have some interaction with. It's called the Washington Interreligious Staff Community. Um, and there's a, a whole slew of working groups within this. And so since we're a small office and more nimble, um, than some or just the oddity of how we function. I try, I try to watch and see where there are particular gaps 
and where you know both where we have strengths and where there's gaps. And so, for example, there's a large interfaith immigration coalition, and we've typically mm-hmm. not worked too extensively with them, though in the last weeks we've done a little bit more because it's probably the strongest faith strongest faith based uh, working group here in D.C. And so I figured, well, you know, there's other places like on Nigeria, for example, where there was no work happening and it was significant need. And so then, you know, we'll try to not go in where we either don't have very strong policy, a particular value add, or where there's already a great deal of coverage. And so we, you know, much of the the, the basic ideas I, I would articulate it is that we, we do service and we do peacemaking at the local level. And this is simply an extension of that. So, you know, if, if we think we should um, not participate in war and we should also live at peace in our local communities, then what does that mean to, to shift policy? And so we'll work, you know, it's all sorts of ways. This, and this usually happens differently per different uh, topics. So in Nigeria, for example, we convene a working group that's not only faith-based. There's actually only a few faith-based offices in it, like Mennonite Central Committee, um, 21st Century Wilberforce Initiative, which works on religious freedom, but also Amnesty International, um, Mercy Corps, which is a large humanitarian organization, Search for Common Ground, the largest peace-building organization in the world. And so we work together. We, we meet monthly. In this case, we you know assess where we're at, where the situation is, particularly focusing in northeastern Nigeria, where Boko Haram affected areas. And, and then we'll, we'll work to get meetings. So in, in about a, maybe two weeks, we'll have another meeting again with these called the Senior Coordinator on Boko Haram at the State Department, Ambassador Mozina. We meet with him somewhat regularly, maybe quarterly, and we'll brief him, um, you know, and he'll update us where their work is. And we'll, we'll push on him on certain things, say, accountability for the military, Nigerian military. There's a large arms sale coming from the U.S. And Amnesty International, for example, has documented extensively human rights violations by the Nigerian military, which either rarely or never have accountability measures taken. So for example, um, an, an internally displaced persons camp, basically refugees inside a country was bombed by the Nigerian military. And there's no, well, there's at least no public accountability or uh, there's a, like a recognition that this wasn't a good thing to have happened, um, but there's, there's no accountability to that. And so, you know, we would, we would meet with, for example, we met with Senator Booker's office and, and so we really would like to have uh, concerns raised about this, this sale of um, warplanes. Um, and, uh, and we, you know, these are the reasons we, like five of us, it was a nice argument, but essentially argued why this was important with the staff person for about an hour. And then a, a week or two later, uh, Booker's office and Senator Paul's office sent a letter to the State Department asking you know, for clarification of why, given the situation, we were going ahead and selling these weapons. Uh, and so th- those are the sorts of things we'll do. Um, but then it you know, varies a little bit per topic. We also do a fair amount with community gardening around the country, which is less policy oriented, but tying, trying to tie local community gardening efforts into larger systemic issues, such as new farm worker rights or racial justice in you know, particular cities, um, things like this. Going to the garden, is that the... Yeah, going to the garden initiative. Yeah, we started it, I guess it was in 2012. Um, I can talk more extensively about that if, if helpful, but um, yeah, that's one of the things we work on. Well, I, we, we do. I, I think you know my daughter, Joelle, and so she's actually yeah. our, uh, she's our uh, garden uh, keeper here, uh, the, the head gardener, and we have a little garden that, okay, that, that we're working on. Uh, I'm really interested in, uh, you know, that you've done this work uh, with uh, Stanley Howard. So I get you did your, your dissertation at the University of South Africa. 
uh, sorry, you broke up there, is the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. Okay, and you did, and you did your work on uh, Stanley Horowitz, and and I assume then that you're tying that your your understanding of the way that the church works is somewhat in accord with Horowitz's notion. You know that he he says the first job of the church mm -hmm. is to be the church. Um, and so it it uh, I guess the question is that. Uh, and, and I know that these two things tie together, but uh, given that that is our first job, explain then uh, that how that ties into your own work and the initiatives that you're that you're working on. Mm -hmm. So you know, everywhere, one of the interesting things about Howaros is that he says this, you know, with great regularity, but with about similar regularity, he says something like the the, the first task of the church is to be the church, but this doesn't mean we shouldn't participate, you know, in all sorts of things. And, you know, in a variety of ways, in a variety of times, he'll note, you know, all types of things that he would affirm engaging in. Some of this is even, you know, very specifically in politics. And he would say, um, you know, our first job is this, but it's not our only job. And it's not, uh, this does not preclude our engaging, you know, in local organizing efforts to, you know, change policies. The The challenge is, I, th I think the reason why people regularly accuse him of, well, this might be a bit of conjecture, the pe people often accuse him of di having people disengage, you know, political life and, um, you know, kind of detach and just hide away from the world. And I, you know, I, I don't think that's his intent. I know that's not his intent. But I think what where, where that might have some truth is that when you when you continually problematize how you go about doing this work, it's easy to to get stuck, uh, not not figuring how. You, if you think about it too much, like a lot of stuff moving in DC, or you move very quickly. You know, it, it takes a lot of. There's all sorts of questionable things of like, you know, should we be here? Have we bought into the system? Are we challenging the system? You know, uh, many working groups will use language that's a bit a bit patriotic for our peace church position. But if we're working in ecumenical interfaith spaces, then you know, this is a, a, a bit of a compromise that we can pick some of this language up or at least kind of be okay with it existing in things that we sign on to. And I, so I think where if, if the critique of him is kind of holds, it is that it, in his problematizing how we engage in the political process or in, you know, changing the world, by problem, problematizing that or raising questions about how we do it, that necessarily slows down our process or how kind of unequivocally we engage in a process that takes a great deal of energy and focus. And so then this might in some way detach us from, um, detach us from this, the, the work, how I would, how I would tend to re, you know, reread would read him would be that our, our primary language is not like, I don't work. I don't work against war because I'm, of a particular political persuasion. I work against war because I believe Jesus calls us to be peacemakers and, and how else is word through Christ, war has been abolished. And so he would say, we don't need to work to abolish war. We need to somehow live the reality that Christ has already inaugurated, um, which feels a little bit complicated. I, I think it's poetic and makes sense. It also feels a little bit like gets us tangled up perhaps, but whatever the case, it um, this our, our, pri our primary motivation and our primary impetus is not, political commitment, but it is a, a, a theological commitment, which mm -hmm. then pushes us or um, 
invites us into engaging in the in the in the work. Um, I'm also uh, as a so my main work is at the denomination running this office, but we're based in a congregation, Church of the Brethren Congregation, Washington City Church. We rent space from them. And I'm also one of the free minister pastors here. So there's three of us who are the pastors. And, you know, so in this context, we get a, we get a lot of uh, opportunities to, to preach the text and to preach uh, for the life of the church, but in the, in the context, literally, almost literally within the shadow of the Capitol, about four blocks from the Capitol building. Um, and so this, our first task is to gather to worship and Church of Brethren have often said, for the glory of God and for our neighbor's good. And so this, mm-hmm. these things then are, for us aren't separated. And I think there are, there, how Ross intends them not to be separated. And he makes a great deal of, you know, work around, uh, you know, you can't divide ethics from worship and even the, the formulation of the and in the middle of the, between those is, you know, problematic. So, you know, he kind of grumbles if you say, you know, what is the relationship between ethics and, and liturgy? Uh, this, this shouldn't be a, a question in his in his understanding uh of course that always takes some finessing how that how those things interact and how you're not just using how you're not just using a liturgical prop say for political power um is is an interesting and complicated question um you know i have a well you don't know i I have a what we call brother and beard or Amish looking beard, which I have because I like, but also it, you know, in a context where we need to be, it's good for people to remember you. It doesn't hurt in being remembered as a guy who bikes everywhere, you know, has an Amish beard. Um, And so this is, there's, there's these things that um, symbols that we sometimes use, which I think is, I don't think it is problematic, but it's not entirely unproblematic (laughs) or it's not, it's not entirely neutral or, uh, a simple, a simple thing. Um, so it takes, it takes some care um, to nav- navigate that. And so this was your, actually, this was your dissertation, right? Was you're dealing with Hauerwas and mm-hmm. explain then how you, what your dissertation was and, and uh, that, that uh, the, the thesis that you were working with. So the, the basic work was to assess and it was analysis of his work on peacemaking. And so I, the, I laid out, kind of sketched out some themes and threads of theological ethics in the U.S., particularly, but more broadly, and then how peacemaking within theological ethics or theology, peace, peacemaking, you know, nonviolence, these things, how Ross particularly uses them somewhat interchangeably. They, you know, you certainly can parse them out somewhat differently. And then look particularly at his ecclesiology and then a number of themes where we see these and a, close, a closer reading of some of his works as instances where he engages in peacemaking or related subjects. And so I looked at, you know, extensively at the peaceful kingdom, for example. I'm also looked at America, uh, war and American difference as a, as an instance of witness against war. So I, I didn't do a real close read of that entire book, but looked at it as a, a formulated um, critique. And in fact, part of peacemaking is you know, critiquing war. So this as a, as an instance of witness against war, which, which I would read as a, a, a facet or part of peacemaking. And then I, then I raised three particular, in the final chapter I raised, which I might end up breaking up when I aim for, when I'm starting to work to try and publish. Um, I, I run his work alongside that of John Paul Lederach, particularly the moral imagination, and look at how, how I think those two 
while not informed by each other, have a lot of, uh, I, I say something like, uh, the moral imagination would be what Howard Ross wrote if he was a peacemaker, like a, a peace building practitioner. And um, some of Howard Ross's work is perhaps what Lederach would do if he was more of a theologian or wrote more extensively in theology. There, there's, some, there's some distinct overlaps. And then I critiqued um, Howard Ross on his engagement with racial justice. And then my biggest section is in that chapter is uh, suggesting ways that Howard Ross's work can be useful or inform, uh, particularly around issues of religion, U.S. foreign policy, or how his work um, either trains readers or trains practitioners to engage in this work. And you know, this is this was pushing him beyond where he would go. I think it's um, in a place that he. I think he would affirm it. I've not gotten feedback from him on it yet. Um, but I. But you know, try and uh, that's all. A little bit tentative and so for example one one way that i talk about how that works mm -hmm. is in there in the sense probably the mid 90s 95 there was a book published by douglas johnston this was the first time that international relations which is what i did my master's in international relations began working on peace building uh, not peace building um religion in international relations like other than up until then it was very, almost never acknowledged as something that is at all relevant for international relations, you know, international conflict, international affairs, just kind of, even though there's some pretty big instances where it feels like it should have been noticed, it was pretty much not. And um, and so since then, particularly in the last, I don't have the exact timeline on this, probably in the last 20 years, definitely in the last 10 years, religion and foreign policy formation is, is getting a little more attention. You know, there are courses in foreign, foreign service training there's ways where it's, people are at least recognizing that religion is a facet that affects how people in the world function and that it's important for us to have at least a basic idea how this works. So I extend that a little further and say, you know, not only do we need to have a basic, you know, basic idea of like the facts about Islam, for example, but we need to have the the skills of reading theology. And this is, so you say either, you know, Howard teaches us to read like this or his work on reading, his writing about reading uh, potentially could inform this. And so, by reading, we get formed. I mean, how else be talking primarily in terms of discipleship? We get formed in you know be Christians, and you even uses reading as a, a a sort of metaphor for how we um, understand the world and you know speak the language of Christianity. But I would then I, I tweak this slightly and say this this learning to read theologically then helps us both um, helps practitioners of foreign policy perhaps, or those of us who engage in this to to further nuance and to more appropriately weight how religion is understood. And so when you hear pronouncements by say, in our case in Nigeria, Boko Haram, this having read theologically and understood um, at least how theological language works and having some deeper engagement with the world of faith, especially if you're not part of this, but also if you're part of this, this then in some way can help us slow us down and, and complicate our understanding in a way that will then help us to more appropriately respond um, to this, um, to these uh, these sorts of movements or this sort of language. The, the most obvious way where Howard Ross in this case would be um, potentially useful is that you know there are many many people who work in the State Department, for example, are Christians or have some sort of faith, and so this you know there I you know I would as an Anabaptist have some 
hesitant, some distinct hesit- hesitancies about this, or about you know certainly in many contexts about the appropriate of this, or you know, how, wonder how much this uh, the political space uh-huh. overdetermines our faith space, um, and of course that that sort of framing would would irritate Hauras. Um but but minimally there are you know many people who are would very openly claim to be Christian or say they're Christian and practices in very public ways and very um, genuine ways. And so, you know, at a very basic level, this, how Ross is challenged to violence, you know, could affect foreign policy in that way. But I, I don't spend a whole lot on that because that's a little, it feels a little too straightforward. And um, I didn't find it quite as interesting. Then I'll also challenge how Ross's take, like he would often make statements, I don't know what, I'm not going to exact quote, but uh, such that, you know, the state is seen, like the state is seen as like a, a monolithic whole. And I'll say when you actually, so the state, the general nation state, not the state department, is seen as a monolithic whole. But when you actually engage with, you know, say the state department, it's essentially made up with, you know, as, as simply one part of this, it's made up of all sorts of people who engage in all sorts of ways, doesn't function all that much as a one massive coherent ideology nor, you know, bureaucracy for that matter. I mean, it's, it's a pretty, fairly complicated spot and so mm-hmm. you know for my work I, I say it's it's a little bit pastoral even because i get you know i'll go to an event i'll like this is actually how i met this senior ambassador senior coordinator on bokaram i i would go to events some of which i was speaking at some of which i was actually none of those i don't think i was speaking at i was just attending and you know interacting and i saw him at three events in a row it's like well this is someone i should meet and then so i you know i went up and met him and learned what he was doing and so we got to know each other we met for coffee got to discuss his work, how he's understanding the work of coordinating around Boko Haram because there's, you know, not one coordinating, you know, person. So trying to, you know, how he's understanding this position. And so the, the connection with him is both uh, uh, convincing him that I bring something valuable and then can help shift the policy or shape the policy of our response to Boko Haram in Nigeria generally. But it's also very relational in that, you know, in these contexts, he eventually gets to know me, he trusts me, he, you know, doesn't think I'm a jerk. He, you know, it's, it's, it's much more relational and almost pastoral in how we get to know people and um, interact and, you know, sh- help to try to shape how they're understanding this. And of course, you know, they're also trying to shape how I'm understanding this. And then, and you know, so it's, this is a form of power, which again, as an Anabaptist is a little bit complicated, but it's not really coercive power in that, um, you know, we're, it's maybe lightly coercive in that we're, you know, we'll have sign-ons where, a certain number of people, you know, organizations will sign on, which is, you know, demonstrates concern and, you know, is a form of power. Um, but it's, but it's not, it's not threatening, nor is it at least not explicitly violent. I mean, some people who really want to have close parsings of this might, you know, might make some sort of argument that, uh, I don't know, I could, I could theorize how that might be, but it's, but it's very, it's, it's, it's a, it's almost like organizing grassroots organizing, but at a, organizational level in relation to a governmental body. And, and so that's, you know, that it's an interesting process. Um, that's, I find actually uh, quite, quite interesting and energizing. And I'm guessing you do a lot of that, 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 that is that you're, uh, it is that through that personal relationship uh, that you're, you're hoping to exercise it uh, or at least bring a different perspective. Yeah, or you know, in the case of the Nigeria working group, people like we started actually we started after the girls were abducted from Shibok, 
Before that, I had it, so I'd worked in Nigeria from 2009 to 2011. So we were working on our visas when Pokemon first attacked. We're there through a relatively quiet year, but a lot of other violence was happening. We were working with a peace building program. We came back, came to DC in 2012. And then from 2012 to 2014, when the girls were abducted, things were getting quite bad in Nigeria, particularly on Boko Haram. And for the Church of Brethren there, with the height in October 2014, they say something like 70% of their membership were displaced, 70% of their churches were destroyed. I think this is devastating. But up until the girls were abducted from Chibok, I didn't do a whole, I didn't do anything public, in part because there wasn't any good forum to do this, but mostly because I thought if we do anything public, then this could increase the risk. You know, if someone is talking about Church of the Brethren in Washington, Boko Haram pays attention to what's being said publicly. This then gives them a target of someone to pay attention to. And so I, I was concerned that doing anything public would, would jeopard, you know, further increase risk. But in 2012, there was, uh, 2014, when the girls were abducted, there was a, a protest vigil rally at the embassy in Nigeria, uh, Nigerian embassy in D.C. And I went, and that's when I first met someone from Amnesty International and a few other people um, who eventually we got started working with and we started convening. And so, you know, in this case, I, I, I didn't want to, we wanted to put energy into organizing because there wasn't some, there was not active organizing happening, but the person from Amnesty was a long time advocate and she's been around here for, for quite like 20 or so years, I think doing this sort of work. And I didn't want to you know, too quickly go in and try and sort of take over the show, but I also didn't think he quite had capacity. It didn't seem like he had the capacity to, to do the organizing. And so we gradually started, you know, we built a relationship and we started, you know, he was like, you know, when we started talking about it, he said, yeah, you know, you know, I'm very happy for you to go forward with this. And he participates very actively, but there was these, you know, it could have easily been that he would have felt like this was, you know, his territory to work on. And if I had charged in and said, we're going to do something, then this, you know, this is on the people that we would work with side, you know, this then, um, if you don't pay attention to those relational components could easily just, you know, create some sort of division, which would, you know, overall then not help the work. And that would be similar to with, you know, U.S. government officials or, you know, other policy folks. We gradually, you know, get to be known as the people that are organizing around Nigeria. You know, we get vouched for by like this ambassador on focusing on Boko Haram. He, you know, in meetings, he'll say, well, you know, like, I trust everything that you say. Um, And so, you know, having someone like that say something like that or having these wide range of organizations say something like this is both are just the very very basic logistically showing up, organizing meetings, you know, moving stuff forward. But then it's also, uh, you know, building relationships with these people who are working on multiple multiple topics that are all incredibly straining. But then also... uh, building up credibility with like the U.S. Institute of Peace, which is a very, very large peace building organization, kind of quasi-governmental peace building organization here in D.C. And, you know, so they, they're increasingly looking to us and the working group as made, you know, significant partners on Nigeria. And so it's, I would, I, mean, if, I feel like I hesitate to say that the relationship is for the purpose of building power. Um, it feels too cynical because, you know, it's actually just like they're people that I like, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're good people. They're doing, you know, good work. I might disagree you know, a variety of points, but it's, but, and so it, it feels, you know, I, I, I hesitate to say, you know, to say that too strongly, but there is a, you know, as with anything you have, you know, any organization or, you know, church or this or that, you have a degree of political capital and that's, you blow that. If you say something wrong, if you say something stupid, if you're a jerk, like you have, you know, uh, these things are, they're not endless. And so you uh, have to pay attention to how you work and, you know, for example, in the case of 
you know, these fairly high level people in the State Department. So we're, we have good, good relationships with the U.S. ambassador to Nigeria mm-hmm. right after he, right when he was uh, sworn in, confirmed, um, we met with him, the working group met with him. And then I was actually going to Nigeria about two weeks after he kind of got on the ground. And I guess that was 2016. And so we met with him immediately when we got there. He you know, set aside a, about an hour and a half for us to meet with him. And then actually we went with him in his, um, which was also an interesting experience in this heavily armed um, truck and um, mini convoy to visit a IDP camp outside of Abuja of our friend of ours. Uh, has organized intentionally interfaith internally displaced persons camp. Uh, so, you know, we have a good relationship with him, but also he doesn't need me to email him every day. And so, you know, eventually I could just be get annoying or if I, you know, push too hard on say the, the military the sale of the, the warplanes, like we, we've expressed our concern about this, but if I pester him endlessly, like I, I will at some point run out of goodwill. And so, you know, you have to, uh, this is a, uh, something that, I mean, I, I don't know if we, I feel like we hit it relatively well, but, you know, paying attention to how, how those, how people are signaling, how they, you know, are receptive, kind of what is a reasonable amount to, to expect what is, uh, you know, hoping for too much as a, you know, our, we have church, you know, church of the brother has a statement from the early uh, 20th century saying all wars sin, no, you know, virtually no one agrees with that in DC. And so, you know, we, uh, how we work together then is, you know, a process of nuancing how we talk about this and not, not straying from our, you know, where our positions are, but also um, recognizing that we're not, most people are not with us. Right. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. I just did a, a podcast uh, with a former Congressman Mark Siliander. I don't know if you, you're familiar with him. No, not really. Uh, and it, what you're describing is very interesting because he came into Congress, you know, as a kind of right-wing evangelical and ended up working in the, the Middle East. And, of course, what you're describing is that, well, here was somebody who indeed was shaped and changed because of the people that just the personal contacts that he had mm-hmm. uh, and the, just the reality of dealing he was just thrust into dealing uh, with, you know, various Middle Eastern uh, people, including Yasser Arafat at mm-hmm. one point, and uh, that, that uh, he, he realized that he did not have a basis uh, to, for a mutual conversation or to engage in a conversation. And that's mm-hmm. what it sounds like you're doing, that, that, uh, that uh, you're wanting to build a relationship and that you would have yeah. a basis for a conversation. <clears throat> we also just did a conversation. Uh, we just, uh, the, 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 it was Stanley Harawas that uh, is up. Uh, so, and so I, I'm, I'm very, you know, you're the, the kind of work that you're doing uh, seems to be a very hands-on sort of involvement. And here we are in a little town in Missouri. What can we do from, from where we are uh, to promote uh, that's uh, to promote peace, uh, you know, not just locally. We're doing some things here, but uh, globally. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, this that that question really is, was part of the, what spurred the Going to the Garden Initiative a number of years ago. And when I came into the office, I was working in all these different working groups, which you know were doing great work. We're very much you know we're in line with our policy positions. 
you know, some church with other members were very engaged with them. But I became, uh, concern might be overstating, I became not certain or I, I, I wanted to further explore what it meant for us to have a public witness and felt that, you know, while DC was an important part of our public witness, it wasn't the only public witness. And certainly for you know majority of the Church of the Brethren, I mean, there's one tiny Church of the Brethren actually in DC, and most of them are not even in any city or in very rural areas. And so, um, and, you know, all, as you know, there's often ambivalence around engaging with the political process and also from a distance. Uh, while it's good to send emails and contact your congresspeople, but that feels like a, a little bit of a thin, thin um, political engagement. And so the, the Going to the Garden Initiative came out of conversation with um, someone, the manager of what's now called the Global Food Initiative, which gave grant money or gives grant money to efforts to address food security, insecurity and food security concerns and work. And he had some a similar feeling. He was also just starting his work and he felt like, well, we're giving all this money out to very good organizations, but it, it has a sort of outwardly oriented, not outward in like a community oriented, but like a, a trajectory away from our congregations. So we, you know, someone gives us money and then I give it to this NGO and there's no, no real connection back from this very good work, you know, in a variety of places around the world, there's very good work. There's very little feedback loop other than maybe a general update that I can forward back to the church, you know, people who gave money, but it doesn't, it doesn't have a real thick engagement um, with the community. And so um, we started discussing and thought, well, there was some, around the time there was a drought happening. So there was also some conversations about how, if there were need to support brother and farmers who were getting hit, small farmers are getting hit by the drought. And part of this ended up being what we called, ended up calling the going to the garden initiative, where I ended up putting a grant proposal to global food initiative for a certain amount of money. And then we co-administered, and this was approved and was co-administered. So we would give congregations grants of up to a thousand dollars to start or expand community-based gardens. And the basic, the basic piece was it needs to be garden. It needs to be, it needs to be garden or address the food security need, kind of garden related, address a need in the community and then also be connected to a congregation. It didn't necessarily need to be on the congregation's land. It could be, in one of our cases, it was an individual who was connected to a congregation but was kind of far away, but they, they wanted to invest in this and feel connected to it and be connected. And so that was the basic. The, the bigger idea as well was just to have this as a platform to both meet a local community need, but then also get to know the community, also have feedback into the congregation, and also to ask bigger questions around um, you know, why are certain people hungry, for example? You know, where, do, where does our food come from? This is early in the, this, our conversation. I mentioned uh, farm workers would be one example of this. Um, recently, we've been working to expand this um, more specifically and focusedly around issues of racial justice. Um, we had a mini garden summit in New Orleans in the Lower Night Ward where one of our members, David Young, has been working since he went to, he retired and then was there doing disaster response after Katrina ended up staying and doing gardening in abandoned lots in the lower ninth ward. And we, at the summit, a number of other people were raising some similar things. And I said, you know, there's this long, there's a, a growing, and of course this work has happened before, but there was a growing cluster of work and focus around racial justice, both through the national council of churches, which we work with focusing on mass incarceration is one of their two focus points since they restructured in 2013, uh, the Christian Citizenship Seminar, which is a high school um, training and advocacy and topic-focused um, event we have yearly. 
uh, with the Church of the Brethren, focused on mass incarceration, as well as um, Native American rights around lands. Last year, mass incarceration was two or three years ago. So there's there's a number of these efforts, and I listened to them more, and I said it it feels like both all of these all of our uh, all of our topics, all of our gardens, invite us to ask questions around racial justice. Um, and also indigenous land rights. So, like, and so, actually, this annual conference, which is next week, which I'm quite excited about, we have they're just they're just being printed, so I don't have them in hand yet. But we have seed packets that have questions printed on them. And though I don't have the questions memorized, my staff person was working on them primarily. But it was questions like it, mm. to ask ask these questions as you're gardening of yourselves. So, you know, whose land was this that we're working on now? You know, what were the native people that were here? Why, if our uh, if our town is predominantly white? Why is that the case? There's many instances that were documented really relatively recently. This was, has been researched, but a number of, uh, I forget the exact time frame between the, um, like their 1930s, 20s or 30s, there was a number of places where there were, um, you know, robust African-American communities that something happened and then there'd be essentially a lynching mob and then everyone would get run out of the town. And so in many cases, if there's a town that's all white, it wasn't always all white. And you know, there was an active process of pushing people out that weren't white. Um, and so this, the gardening then invites us to ask these questions, or I think can invite us to ask these questions, which then, of course, how do you, how do you address things like mass incarceration, you know, which then to get you t- tied into all sorts of knots of, um, not knots, very complicated and deep and multifaceted mm-hmm. policy decisions that have happened for years and years that have led to this the process where, you know, disproportionately African Americans are incarcerated, and you know all, all this piece that ties into mass incarceration. Um, and so one of our one of the pastors who was at this at this summit in New Orleans, he's from Los Angeles, and he said, "Well, you know, this is, he, he like it was interesting. It was at the end of the day where we had a lot of sessions, and I was the last person, like literally probably." a third to half of the people in the, in the room looked like they were falling asleep or going to fall asleep as I was getting talking. And I was going to talk about this and everyone just, people had flown overnight to get there. You know, they had pushed harder to work to, so they could get there. And like, and it was hot. And I was like, man, this is, this is rough. And I was talking about, I started talking and, and I was kind of narrating this and people, you know, were paying attention and trying to engage. I knew they were trying to be engaged, but we're feeling, and then I started saying, you know, I think we really need to focus on this. And this, this pastor, Thomas Dowdy, um, he, I think near, he was one of, he was, he was nearly falling asleep and nearly jumped yeah. out of his seat. I was like, this, like, this is it. Like uh, we're, he's uh, he said, our community is, has been trying to figure out how to, how to work with people who are reentering, um, uh, reentering society after being imprisoned you know, coming out of this complex of mass incarceration. And, you know, we haven't quite, quite hooked up like what this means. And he said, you know, also as, um, as an African-American you know, agricultural things, of course, have a complicated history for him. You know, when you start thinking about, you know, being forced to be engaged in these things historically, um, but he, we, it, it, something clicked uh, with him when he was saying, this is, you know, this is a way that we engage with our community and teach it, you know, potentially helps people have skill, skills that um, you know, can create healing. And um, so, you know, again, that's, that's, that then ties, potentially can tie into very specific policy questions you know, which are many and unfortunately abundantly abundantly um, available to be addressed um, but it also it also in the in the say in the world of you know, think trying beginning to think more like or being being, influ- being influenced by Howard Ross, this is then a thicker engagement and so it's the, the congregation is engaged 
in multiple ways as part of their worship or is their worship. And you can't, you can't separate out um, the gardening that happens, you know, as you're leaving church on Sunday um, and as you meet people and welcome them in and then ask questions of why they're hungry. Um, this, this both is a very practical thing, but then also uh, helps us to engage on what feels like very often very distant. So, uh, what was what was specifically the initiative that you did with Ma- in regards to mass incarceration? So, for us, so well, for one, I, I represent us on the convening table for the National Council of Churches, which has mass incarceration as one of its focus points. Um, the convening tables are still working out how this um, works. I think in in a context of pretty minimal uh, National Council of Churches staff, I mean, they have much fewer staff. You know, staff is radically reduced. And so I've engaged in that to some degree. Um, what I mentioned specifically for us was I said it's every every year except every four years we have National Youth Conference, which is actually where I met your daughter at National Youth Conference last time. Um, and so every other year we have um, a weekend, almost a week actually. So high schoolers from around the country will come to New York City from Saturday evening until it's either Monday or Tuesday. We just shifted it. I think we count now come to DC on Monday uh, and learn about a topic. And so we've done, in my time, we've focused on immigration, focused on indigenous land rights, mass incarceration. Um, and then we've done my first, my three weeks when I, my first three weeks when I started here, we had one and it was on environmental, um, something around environmental care, creation care, but I don't, I wasn't part of planning. I just attended it. So it's a little more fuzzy in my memory. Um, so one, the one who focused on mass incarceration. And then we come, sorry. So we do the education in New York. We come to DC and then eventually do lobbying on or advocacy on Capitol Hill um, around the topic. And so that's what we did on mass incarceration. So are you actually, uh, are there, uh, that you're doing primarily at a policy level, are you doing something at the local level or in prisons or... Well, Church of the Brother members would be, and some of them would be. My office hasn't been, uh, in part just because we're two to three or four people. And so we, we primarily work, like our job is policy level, but I try to tie it into congregation level. The, the one gardener, for example, in Lower Ninth in New Orleans, on Sundays he goes to a local prison and visits with people. Um, there's a death row support project where people, you know, get connected with people on death row and write letters to them. And so there's which we don't manage that. And so there's multiple ways that it happens, but they're more at the congregation level rather than the denomination level. So I don't, I haven't worked as closely with those. You mentioned at some point, and I'm curious that uh, you thought Harwas is, uh, was inadequate or you were critiquing him on issues of racial, racial justice. Can you explain that? Sure. Um, basically, I haven't reread that section for a little bit, so I'm, I'm not sure if I can get everything. Basically, um, I, I, I work in part from um, James Cohn's The Cross and Lynching Tree, where he critiques um, one of the chapters mm-hmm. he critiques um, Niebuhr on having worked in um, a union for years, but probably never or very rarely having ever engaged in Harlem and in going into Harlem and engaging with the African-American community. And so engaging on issues of race, but in a fairly abstract and rather detached way and and then also held that alongside um i think his name is reggie williams wrote um bonhoeffer's black jesus about bonhoeffer teacher bonhoeffer's experience in um, harlem and how that affected his 
um, theology and engagement um, and resistance work, and essentially say as a as a significant, some would say the, one of the most influential, the most influential theological ethicists, um, Harash should spend more specific time focusing on issues of racial justice, recognizing that he won't recognizing that he won't have all the answers. So, I mean, he has, so it's one of his first things he wrote, which, um, or he comments on one of the first thing he wrote was around racial justice when he was still a graduate student or just beginning to teach. And he has a few points. And so my impression is that he knows that this is a problem. He makes a number of side comments of like recognizing that this is a problem and that things aren't right, but he has very little focused work on this. And some people would say, so I think Jonathan Tran writes in one of his books, one of these compilations of maybe an unsettling arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, well, you know, as a, as a white guy, he shouldn't, he shouldn't assume that he knows what he's talking about with racism. And he, rec- you know, he recognizes this is a problem. But he, he does this in part because he doesn't, um, he recognizes that he can't adequately talk about this. And I, I would say that's, that's true. And I won't think as a, as a white guy, he should, or, nor should I know, know what I'm talking about or assume to be authoritative. However, given his um, stature and given his regular ability to stand up and talk about things that he, um, you know, admits that he doesn't like, doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, he's, he's very open for self-critique and certainly a critique of the U.S. church. I mean, you know, this is, he would not be one to, to say that he, he's not up for being critiqued or critiquing. Um, given this, he should at least make an attempt, given both the severity of the problem and the ongoing nature of the problem and the way um, mm-hmm. and, and his stature as someone who, and even just like the people he engages with. And I, I think, you know, I, I, I hesitate to say this because I think it, I feel like it leaves him off the hook a little bit. Given his commitment to, to not having a system and to responding to specific requests for specific topics and sort of fragment intentionally fragmentary nature of his work. Um, I, my impression is that it's, this is, this became, um, it it was not at all intentional, but just how it happened. So if, you know, if a person asks him to come and talk, he'll come and talk. And if they didn't ask him to talk about this, then he won't talk about it. And then this then becomes self-perpetuating. And I found this even for myself when I was writing about, you know, this was a concern I had, but the people that were primarily engaging with him were primarily white men and white North American men. And not only, but primarily. And, and then when, so if you want to write, if you want to read his work and, you know, engage with people that are writing on him, then you tend to get skewed this direction and then even over skew that direction. And so there's a, a critique by, I forget her name. Um, I almost have it in Christian century about two years ago about his work, that the, his book, work of theology and she she comments on like you know on the, the people he footnotes and references being so the, the overall overall space of theology and theological ethics is kind of disproportionately white and male but his footnotes skew even further that direction and and you know it's i i, you know, I don't think she thinks it's it's simply a comment you know mm-hmm. simply an issue of counting and he certainly wouldn't think it's an issue of counting but given his commitment to friendship and his theology of friendship and engaging with a wide range of people, and given his practice of reading very widely, um, this, I, I say minimally, he needs to more extensively in, interact with um, theologians and theological ethicists of color. And then this, this form, even, of a, even if it's a distance form, distant form of friendship, will then, then necessarily shapes how you, how you see the world just by who, you, who you're interacting with. And so I don't, 
so that, that's my, my basic takeaway or uh, urging is that given the commitment to friendship and wide reading, there's, you really should at least read more widely. And, the, and then this would then shape how you, because, because once you read and once you hear the story and the, the, the challenge, it is, um, it becomes to feel more of a necessity to respond. Like you just, you, you're not the same. Um, so that, but that, that's not the, my, my biggest section of, of in the more constructive ed would be on the foreign policy. And that's what's your book. You're going, you're, have you published or you're, you're about to publish portions of your dissertation? I'm beginning the process of hopefully publishing. I've not, I've not made any official contacts yet. I've been sorting a few things out between my boss um, within the domination. Uh, I'm going to submit a proposal to Whiptonstock. Um, there's a brother and series or brother I have series within them that we'll pro- probably try to be part of, but just beginning that process. Okay. Well, we'll look. What should, well, have you got a title yet? Um, Brother Hauerwas, uh, analysis of, uh, a critical analysis of peacemaking, the work of Stanley Hauerwas. Oh, wow. That sounds wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I was just saying, I'm happy to send you the the big PDF if you want, but it might be better just to wait until it's published. (laughs) Oh, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it. If, uh, in fact, if you're, if you would uh, be willing, we could, uh, you know, along with this podcast, we could do a little, uh, put up a blog, uh, kind of outlining, uh, uh, portions okay, of your great. keyword. Yeah, I'll send it over to you. Uh, okay. All right. This has been a wonderful conversation, Thanks for having Nathan. Me. Um, and uh, you know, I've, what we're hoping is that we can uh, we can. Uh, uh, there, as I do this, I discover there's a whole network of people doing all sorts of things, and that we can learn from one another, and maybe just through networking maybe have a, a, a greater impact as we become aware of what's being done. And so, you know, it just sounds like you're doing a key and important things. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.